So this morning we're going to open up our Bibles. We're going to be heading to Romans chapter 12, continuing our series through Romans, which has been just a wonderful thing to do. And as you open up to Romans 12, I might pray and we'll jump into it today. Lord God, we just thank you for this time of opening up your word. Lord, we thank you for the power that is in your word. Lord, it is truth, it is life, it is a lamp for our feet, a light for our path, Lord God. Lord, um, I just pray today that our hearts would be open. As the seed of your word goes forth, it would, it would fall on good soil and would yield a harvest many times what was sown. Lord God, we just come humbly before your word this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, I pray. Breathe life, Holy Spirit, into the words that I speak. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, a little straw poll this morning. I wonder how many of us here enjoy or like the process of exams or tests. Anyone? Not many hands going up this morning. That's okay. I feel like this process of doing exams or tests, it, it, it kind of goes a couple of different ways. Either you're someone who just like wings it and goes through and you know the right response and it's easy. I don't know if anyone's like that in this place today. Maybe it's you're someone that in exams and tests, you like, you put in the preparation, you study, you work really hard and then you kind of grind it out and then get through it. Or maybe, maybe it's kind of a little bit of both, a little bit of both. Have you ever had one of those moments where in an exam, you're just you're just not quite sure of the right response. Maybe you've reviewed the coursework, you've put in the study and you get there and you're faced with a question and you're like, oh, I know this, I know this and you just get stuck and you wrestle through the answer and you get something down because maybe you'll get some points for showing that you know something along the way. When I was at school or uni, I found that it wasn't necessarily that helpful to chat with my friends after the exam. Because if there was a particular question that I'm like, oh, I just wasn't sure what the right response was, and then I'd ask my friends after, and I'd say, hey, what, what did you do with that question? You know, it was about this, and, and they go, oh, yeah, that was easy. This is what I did. And, it, and you're like, hmm, that was different than what I did. And you start second-guessing yourself leaves you feeling a little bit uncomfortable and awkward. Or perhaps you've had one of those infamous Mr. Bean moments. You know, where he goes to the exam and he takes out the exam paper and then this doom just settles on him as he realizes that he has no idea what to do with the exam. And he spends the next one hour and 58 minutes trying to copy his neighbor, trying to figure out and stress about this exam until he realizes, of course, the right question, the right paper was still just there in the exam envelope. All he needed to do was take it out, and then he did, in fact, know the right response. Exams and tests can be stressful. In our passage for today, this is actually a really crucial juncture in the book of Romans, where Paul changes tact a little bit. He's been laying out this wonderful theology. The glorious nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's plan for salvation. And here in Romans 12, he changes focus and he begins to outline for the believers 
what the practical outworking or the practical application of the theological truths that he's just laid out in the previous 11 chapters. In essence, he has presented the coursework, if you like, if you like. He's laid out the course material. And here, like the exam that I talked about earlier, he presents the question to us, how should we respond to God's mercies? What is our right response to this glorious gospel and all that Christ has done? The good news for us this morning is that it's an open book test. It's an open book test. We can see God's mercies presented all throughout. And the good news is, is that he also gives the answer, or he lays out the answer for us, the right response, and it's for us to grab hold of, to notice, and to live out today. Let's read together from Romans chapter 12, from verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, honestly, there is so much in these verses that we could unpack and unpack and unpack and go on and on. But these verses, I believe, are so important for us to grasp, to consider the ramifications of for our lives of faith. They're they're like, as I've been reflecting on it this week, they're they're kind of like a a hinge or a fulcrum, if you like, where everything that has gone before in Romans leads us to this point. And then as we read on in the coming weeks, everything that comes afterwards, the practical outworking or application in our lives of faith, flows from this point here in these verses. And this point, this right response, ultimately is is worship. And I want to unpack that a little bit this morning. For it's not enough for us to read through Romans, to be following along with this series that we've been going through for much of this year, and think of all that the Apostle Paul has laid out for us as merely just good theories or good principles or wonderful ideas, or even just good theology, because theology, as the saying goes, our theology must lead us to doxology. Our knowledge and our revelation and understanding of God and who He is must actually lead us to worshipful response. And so as we consider these verses this morning, as we consider them in light of all that has gone before in Romans, of all that we've been unpacking as a church over the last little while, as we consider them, if everything that has gone before does not lead us to worship, we kind of miss the point. And then if the practical outworking of our faith, the love and hospitality and honouring others and all those things that we will read about in the coming weeks, if all the practical outworking of our faith does not flow from worship, well, we miss the point as well because it just becomes dead religion and works. So these two verses contain really a sermon series in and of themselves. But as we consider the right response this morning, I want to do my best to just bring out a few things that I hope 
will encourage us and stir our hearts. So we'll start at verse 1. And the NIV translation puts it this way. Now, the NIV is what I kind of grew up with. uh, And so it's still kind of embedded in here and in here. And this is, what, this is how it puts it in that very first verse of Romans 12. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. And the first thing that I want to encourage us in this morning, in order of knowing the right response, is this. That the right response involves beholding the view. Keeping God's mercies in view. We must consider in our lives of faith what's in our view. And if we've caught a glimpse of God's mercies, if we've caught a glimpse of his love towards us, if we've caught a glimpse of the incredible, wonderful nature of salvation and the outworking of that in our lives, if we've caught a glimpse of that view, that will surely lead us to the right response. Let me frame it this way. Recently, uh, my family and I, we went away on holidays. We had uh, just out my annual leave, kind of in, earlier in July, and we had a wonderful time away. We went up north, where it was a little bit warmer, up to the mid-north coast of New South Wales. And this place that we stayed, this year we, we, we rented a place, an apartment, a unit that overlooked the water, this beautiful, scenic, picturesque bay. And... Uh, this view was simply stunning. It was like every morning walking down and into the lounge room, looking out. It was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I could just feel the, all those good endorphins and the relaxation and refreshment coming, just looking out and beholding this view. And, you know, the sunrises were stunning as the sun rose over the water. But then equally, the sun sets as the sun moved to the other side and, and, and kind of the silhouette of the the dark uh, hills in the distance and the golden hue of the evening light were just stunning as well. And so I'd find myself most days capturing the view with my phone, with my camera, capturing a view several times a day because, you know, the sunrise was just so glorious. Then during the day as the sun was at a different angle and was reflecting upon the water differently, it was like, ah, the view is wonderful again. As I was high tide or low tide, I'd want to catch another aspect of the view. Perhaps there were some clouds that brought some new color. Throughout the day, throughout our trip there, there were many different aspects of the view that I wanted to capture. It highlighted the different elements of beauty. And even now, I look back at the view. I go through my phone. The holiday feels a little way away now. Just to behold and remember and remind myself of the view. In view of God's mercies, Paul writes. Well, what is the view? What is the view that we need to keep in our gaze? What is the view that we need to revisit, that we need to to look towards and see because there are different aspects and different elements of beauty for us in our lives? Well, we see the view that Paul has laid out in the previous chapters. The view is the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The view is that All have sinned, the issue of sin that's serious, that needs to be dealt with, but the view also paints this picture of the solution, that is through Jesus that there is salvation and forgiveness and redemption available to us. 
the view that's before us is that his kindness actually leads us to repentance. The view that's before us is that even though we were sinners, we now have right standing with God, justification through faith. The view is that we have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This view that Paul has painted is that while we were still sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for us. The view is that there is freedom available to us, that we are no longer slaves to sin. The view is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The view that needs to be before us is that we have life in the Spirit, that God is at work, that He's working all things together for our good. That the view is that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ, that He is sovereign and that His redemptive plans and purposes continue to be outworked. And we could go on and on and on. So I would put to you this morning that's in view of all this, in view of God's mercies, because of all this, that we are called to respond. So the question I want to put to us today is this, is all that Jesus has accomplished, is the glory and the beauty of the gospel clear in your view? Or has it grown dim? Has it become common that you can no longer see it? Clearly? Has it become, instead of the high definition channel on the TV, when the sport's relegated to gem or something like that, and it's not in high definition, it's a little bit blurry, has the view of God's mercies become a little bit blurry or dim? While we were away at the coast, I, I asked my lovely wife, I said, Darling, do you reckon if you lived at the coast, If you lived here, looking at this view all the time, do you reckon it would still be as wondrous? Do you reckon it would still be as glorious? Do you reckon it would still be something that just takes your breath away? Or do you reckon after time, it would just become a little bit ho-hum? You just kind of become used to it. You'd just be like, yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? But, you know, and I just wonder if sometimes in our lives of faith, we can also get to be a little bit like that, where in view of God's mercy, the view has just gone a little bit dim. The wonder's just gone a little bit to one side. The right response, I believe, involves beholding the view, keeping God's mercies in view. Because it's in light of all this, in light of all that he's laid out, these previous chapters, that Paul is appealing to God's people. It's interesting language, isn't it? He says, I appeal to you. You can almost hear his passion, the stirring in his heart as he's been probably, you know, writing as fast as he can, outlining all the glories of the gospel. And he gets to this point and he's like, therefore, I appeal to you. It's, not, it's strong language, isn't it? It's, it's, not, it's not like a, a suggestion. You know, so I'm, I'm suggesting maybe you'd like to consider. It's not an encouragement even like a, you know, yeah, so because of that, I no, it's, it's a, he is saying, I appeal to you. This word means beseech, implore, urge you to re- respond rightly. Now, an appeal requires a response, doesn't it? Like a charitable organization, they have a, an appeal, a fundraising appeal. And they might come knocking at your door and there's a 
There's a response required. Or, and forgive me for this example, but in cricket, if an appeal is made to the umpire, it's usually a passionate one, the umpire must respond. For example, hypothetically, if a batsman's facing up and just happens to wander out of his crease, and the wicketkeeper throws the stump down because he's alert, they appeal, the fielding team will appeal to the umpire. And the umpire hypothetically needs to consider this situation and respond with a decision that the batsman is in fact out. <laughs> Forgive me. If you've been following the Ashes, you'll know what I'm talking about. If not, just uh, extend some grace towards me this morning. So he's saying, I appeal to you in view of God's mercy, this passionate appeal which therefore demands a response. And so the right response, second thing I want to encourage us in, the right response involves beholding the view, keeping God's mercies in view. The right response is to worship. Is to worship. You might be thinking, oh, okay, well, I can't sing, can't play an instrument, I'm not musical, I don't particularly like worship. But I want to say to us this morning that worship involves so much more than just our music and our song. As we look through scriptures, worship, this idea of worship involves bringing an offering to the Lord. Of course, the Old Testament, that looked like bringing an offering, an actual offering that was laid down and, and sacrificed on the altar. As we look through scripture, we read that this idea of worship involves obedience. In fact, when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac when the Lord speaks to him and he goes. The word that he uses in Exodus there, sorry, Genesis, not Exodus, Genesis, is that we're going to go up the mountain and he says, we're going to go to worship and then we'll return. So his worship in that place wasn't going to go and have a nice time of singing. It was going to bring a sacrifice and be obedient to what God had asked him to do. And so that for him was worship. It involves surrender, it involves sacrifice and cost. All these aspects of worship are now brought together here by the Apostle Paul and put to God's people as a picture of the living sacrifice, our spiritual worship. As we behold and capture the view, what this must lead us to is to present ourselves to God as an offering. This is our worship. This is what worship looks like. All of us, all of our lives, and it's an ongoing thing, not just an occasional or a one-time thing. Paul is saying, take your body, all the tasks that you have to do each and every day, take the ordinary work at the shop, the factory, the office, the public service, the school, the hospital, whatever it might be, and offer all that as an act of worship to God. Now, as we reflect on that this morning, what would that look like if we grabbed hold of that in our lives? And lived that out. I'd suggest to you, maybe our lives would look very different. This word translated worship is a particular Greek word, latria, with an interesting history. And Scottish pastor and theologian William Barclay explains it like this in his uh, commentary. He says that originally the word meant to work for hire or for pay. It was the word which was used for the laboring man who gave his strength to his employer in return for the pay that the employer would give him. 
So it denotes not slavery, but the voluntary undertaking of work. The word then came to mean to serve, but it also came to mean that to which a man gives his whole life, or the dedication of one's life to. Finally, the word came to be Word came to be um, came to be the word which was characteristically and distinctively used of the service of God. And so, as this particular word is used in Scripture, it never means human service only, but always used of service and worship of God. So, what's the significance for us? The true worship, the right response, if you like, to God's mercies and the glory of the gospel. The true and the really spiritual worship is the offering of one's body, and all that one does with it every day to God. Because it can be so easy to think of worship as what we do here, a church on a Sunday. And yes, certainly that is our right response, to gather together corporately, to lift our voices in the Lord, in response to the Lord, for who He is and all He's done. That's why we prioritize it. That's why we set aside time to do that to turn our hearts towards him and respond with praise, with adoration. But I want to put to us this morning that what happens here at church should be the overflow of our worship, not just the extent of our worship. So what happens here should, not just be, the, uh, should be the overflow of our worship, not just the extent of our worship. In other words, our right response to God's mercies, our right response of worship, should in fact carry on beyond the walls of this church and flow to our day-to-day lives. For real worship is the offering of our everyday life to God. Let's develop this further. Because the, Paul, the term that Paul uses here is your spiritual worship. Or maybe it says in your translation, your rational service or your reasonable worship. And this particular uh, word used here for spiritual is logikos, which means rational, reasonable, and in essence it means the only right response. And it encompasses this idea that we actually have no other option. In view of God's mercies, in light of his saving power, in light of his redemptive plan and purposes, which are still being outworked, in our lives and across the world today, in light of the finished work of the cross, the only right and logical and reasonable and rational and appropriate response is to offer ourselves, all of us, even the good, the bad and the ugly, to God for the glory of his name. It's like Paul is saying, there is no other logical option. If you review the course material, if you study up, if you keep that in view... If you weigh up the significance of what it means, the logical right response means that you're left with no other option but to worship, but to continually offer your life to him as worship, ongoing, as an ongoing day-to-day thing. Uh, A guy by the name of Jago Wynn in his book, Working Without Wilting, he says this, that our act of worship is no longer to bring a sacrifice, but to be one ourselves. We remain living. It is all of us that is being offered. Worship is about what I say with my tongue. It's about what I watch, what I think, where I go with my feet. All those things are the kind of spiritual worship that Paul is appealing to us to respond with. 
I was just thinking and reflecting earlier on the hymn. Uh, it's an old hymn, but it was kind of done in a, in a modern version. The hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, Consecrated Lord to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. It goes on to talk, take my voice, let it sing only always for my king. Take my silver, my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. And it goes on and on. I think I've covered most of it there. But this idea, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Every part. Our voice, our intellect, our hands, our feet, whatever our hands find to do, our wallets, silver and gold, all those things offered to the Lord and say, hey, here I am, Lord. It's yours. It's yours. Because of your mercies, in view of all of that, Lord, I have no other option. It's the only reasonable response. You see, that response impacts and changes us. It impacts and changes how we live, what we do, how we approach the ordinary day-to-day life. What would it look like if we grasped this in a deeper way? Instead of Monday-itis, maybe it would look like, hey, I get to go to worship the Lord today. Whether that's in the home, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's study, whatever it is. The right response is to worship the Lord. That's the appeal that Paul is writing about, that he gives to us. It's to bring every part of us as our reasonable, appropriate, the only right response. It's to worship. Finally, this morning, I want to encourage us in this, that the right response leads us to transformation. He writes, we're called to be transformed, not just conformed. Just as our right and logical response to God's mercies is worship, the offering of our everyday life to God, so too the refusing to be conformed to the pattern of this world is an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing resistance, if you like, and an ongoing surrender. You know, as we read throughout the New Testament, the New Testament writers that kind of carry on this theme, Perhaps in slightly different language, but you know, this idea of resisting the devil, of fleeing from immorality, of standing firm, of this warning against worldliness, just to name a few examples. But it's strong. Do not be conformed to this world. And the message paraphrase puts it like this Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. You'll be changed from the inside out. In essence, Paul is saying, don't try to match your lives to the fashions and the form of this world. The standards, the values, the practices, the cultural norms of our day. We're not to be like the chameleon which just takes its color from its surroundings, but rather something different than that. 
We're not to just go with the world and let the world decide what we're going to be like. One thing I've noticed, and perhaps you might have noticed this as well, is that many people just want to kind of fit in. They don't want to stand out or be different, whether that's a peer pressure thing, whether that's a cultural thing, whether that's a tall poppy syndrome thing that we have going on in our nation, in our culture. But you know, nowhere in Scripture are we called as God's people to just fit in, to just go along with the crowd. Instead, as we read through Scripture, we see that God's people are always called to be set apart, that there's always a call for holiness, that there's always a call to be different, to be distinct, as we looked at recently. Philippians 2 says that we're to shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. In the midst of the darkness, the light shines. That's the people that God has called us to be, not the ones that just conform and fit in. As a teenager, one of my favorite movies was Remember the Titans. Has anyone seen that? A few people, okay. If you haven't, you can go and watch it. I haven't seen it for many years, so as a 14, 15-year-old, it was great. Maybe, maybe it's changed. But it's an inspiring film about a high school football team from, from Virginia in the U.S. in the aftermath of the abolition of racial segregation in the public high schools. So it kind of, it's based on a true story, and it paints this picture of this high school football team that had to come together in the midst of much opposition, in the midst of much... Uh, many issues, uh, racial issues, and the team, of course, were made up of both white and black students. And there's infighting, there's all sorts of issues, but they come together on this training camp away. And there's this one scene where the coach, played by Denzel Washington, he's there and they're doing these fitness drills and he's got his whistle. And in between each blow of the whistle, he says, we've got to change the way we block. We've got to change the way we tackle. We've got to change the way we eat. We've got to change the way we win. All these things that he's saying and barking out orders to the the high school football team. We've got to change. We've got to change. The idea being that they couldn't just keep going on the way that things had always been. Now, the right response to God's mercies demands a radical change, transformation. The gospel is transformative in nature, changes us from the inside out. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So we can think of this appeal, this exhortation to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And it can be very easy to go down the path of works. Like the Remember the Titans, we've got to change, we've got to change, we've got to change, we've got to change. The good news is that the Lord is in the transformation business. Aren't you glad about that? That he takes our brokenness and he is able to turn it into something beautiful. And this process of transformation in our lives is the work of the Spirit and our willing participation. The Greek word used here has come into our English language as this word metamorphosis, and it describes a change from within. It involves a fundamental transformation of character and conduct away from the standards of this world and into the image of Christ himself. And it's in our response of presenting our bodies, all of our lives to him, that this transformation takes place. And it's an ongoing thing. It's like we could say that we are all works in progress. Not in a negative context at all. 
but in a beautiful and glorious context. That we're works in progress. In Philippians 1, we read that, um, that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it through, will carry it through to completion till the day of Christ. I don't know about you, but that's encouragement for me. That we're works in progress. Whether we've been walking with the Lord for five minutes or five decades, that we're works in progress. And as we willingly surrender, as we, in right response, offer up our bodies to Him, as we welcome the work of the Spirit, that He is at work transforming us to be changed from the inside and out. This transformation comes as our thinking is renewed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God and will in fact impact the practical outworking of our faith. As we will go on to read in the latter part of this chapter in the weeks to come and the chapters to come, you know, to be a people who love genuinely, to hold, who hold fast to what is good, honour others, pray, all those things. Building on this theme, earlier in Romans, Paul has already written of the need to no longer present your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. You know, living the way we want, doing whatever we want. Perhaps we could say, don't be conformed, don't match your lives to the standard of this world, but rather, as you present yourselves to God, you will be transformed to be instruments of righteousness. As we continue to present our bodies, all of our lives to him, author and pastor John Stott puts it like this, Then our feet will walk in his paths. Our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up those who have fallen and perform many mundane tasks as well for his glory. Our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distress and our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. Only a vision of his mercy will inspire us to present our bodies to him. And allow him to transform us according to his will. I want to put to us this morning, and maybe Jeanette, you might like to come up if that's okay. I want to put to us this morning that this is the right response. To keep his mercies in full view. To worship, to give all of ourselves as an offering unto the Lord as an ongoing day-to-day thing, and to allow him to transform us from the inside out so that, so that we will put God's mercies in view of the world around us, in view of the world around us. So I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, in view of God's mercies, in light of all that he has done, would we together respond in this way this morning to come before the Lord and offer up our everyday ordinary lives the mundane things the exciting things bring them before him as an offering of worship and would we too not just be conformed would we resist and stand firm to be conformed to the pattern of this world but instead would we welcome and allow the transforming work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. Would you stand this morning? I'd invite the prayer team to come forward, please.
Lord, I want to thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, you are so good. Lord, I just uh, thank you for your word. Lord, we don't want to leave this place the same as we came in. And I pray that you would be at work, Holy Spirit, in our hearts, stirring and awakening us. Lord God, that in light and in view of your mercies, we would not just fail to respond or be casual in our response to that. But Lord, your mercies would be in full view, that we would respond with worship, the giving of our lives, the offering of our lives, all of us to you. And that Lord, we would continue to be changed and transformed. Lord, as we resist being conformed to this world and as we welcome the transformation of your spirit in our hearts and lives. Help us, O oh God. Help us, O oh God. May our, may our worship here impact our lives out there. Lord, that what happens here would not be the extent of our worship, but rather the overflow. Lord, you would teach us and help us in the day to day. That even those mundane tasks, those things that we find frustrating or difficult, there would be a grace upon them, Lord, as we bring them before you as an offering of worship. I bless each and every person this morning with the love of the Father, with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May we go from this place. Lord God, full of expectancy for the week ahead, that we would know your presence, that we would know your leading. And Lord, with a renewed resolve to respond rightly and bring to you an offering of worship. I ask that in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.